So um, tonight we're going to be continuing our series, Life Behind the Shield. We're focused on First Peter, and uh, I'm doing First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. And the title of my message is, How to Live for God's Glory When the End is Near. But before I get into the word, let's pray first. Father, we thank you for the incredible privilege to proclaim your word. I pray that it'll be clear. I pray that it'll be anointed. I pray that it'll be life-changing. I pray that you'll speak first and foremost to me, that my life will be in order, and I will bring glory to your name for the rest of my life. And may that be true for each and every one of us. Well, we're three-quarters of the way into our series, Life Behind the Shield, and central to Peter's message throughout the letter is the fact that we are in a spiritual war, and that's why we need to live our lives behind God's shield. Well, this evening, we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and as I said, the title is, How to Live for God's Glory When the End is Near. I got that theme from three key verses in our text. Verse 5, Peter says about a future day when we will give an account to God. And then in verse 7, Peter reminds us that this accounting at the Lord's return could be very soon. The end is near. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Then in verse 11, Peter sums up what kind of lifestyle we should be living when he returns. That in all things, God may be glorified. What does it mean to glorify God? Peter uses a Greek word coming from the root doxa. We get the word doxology from that word. And it means to give worship, to exalt or extol, to magnify, to honor, to praise. And these words usually make us think of praise and worship gatherings. When we sing to God, when we lift our hands to God, when we play our instruments to God. But to glorify God should include everything that we do, as Peter tells us in the text. That in all things God may be glorified. One of the main words for worship in the Old Testament is avodah. It means both worship, but it also means work. And so when we work, we're even in the process of worshiping the Lord. If we're working for him, if we're working in a way that will glorify him. Now let's look at what it means to live for God's glory when the end is near. Yeshua is coming soon. And he's coming soon to reward us according to how we are bringing glory to God. At his first coming, Yeshua entered the world as a baby in Bethlehem. He came as a little lamb, but as a lion, he will return. He is coming as the judge of all the earth. And that's a horrific scenario, at least for those who are unbelievers who are rejecting God. But as followers of Yeshua, we can actually look forward to his return because while the unbeliever will face the great white throne judgment where sheep are separated from goats and where certain people are convicted of rebellion and cast into the lake of fire, we who know Yeshua, we who follow Yeshua, will not face that kind of judgment, but rather, as 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 to 10 says, we will face the judgment seat of Christ, the Messiah. I'll read those verses. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, that is to God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done. Now, there are a great variety of different rewards that the Lord will hand out at that judgment. In fact, speaks of many crowns as the crown of life the crown of righteousness the crown of glory the crown of rejoicing 
And in this same letter that we're studying in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, Peter says, The Father, without partiality, judges according to each one's work. Now, from our text now, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, we will see four ways to live for God's glory, knowing that the end is near. Number one, we should arm ourselves with the mindset of the Messiah. We should arm ourselves with the mindset of the Messiah. Where do I get that from? Well, right in verse 1, right from the very beginning. It says, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. The message version of this verse of our text goes like this. Since Yeshua, or Jesus, went through everything you're going through and more, learn to think like him. Now, our enemy in our spiritual battle loves to play with our thinker. He knows how easy it is for our minds to become discouraged, especially when we're not prepared for a life as a soldier in God's army, that we're not prepared for a warfare. The element of surprise is one of the most important factors in winning a war. And our enemy knows that if we're caught off guard, if we aren't expecting a fight in this world, we're going to get discouraged very easily and we'll end up waving the white fly, uh, flag and surrender. <clears throat> well, Peter tells us that we need to have Yeshua's mindset about suffering and war. Yeshua's mindset was to expect to fight battles in this world and to suffer in those battles. The spirit of Yeshua led him into the wilderness to be confronted by the devil. And we know that from 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, that for this purpose... The Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Yeshua was not surprised at the confrontation that he would have with the devil. Like Yeshua, we should expect to face similar battles, have the same mindset he, that he has, knowing that we are in a spiritual war. We should not be surprised by that. Like Yeshua, if we have that mindset, we will be well-equipped and armed to face the enemy of our souls, the devil, and our old sinful nature. Now, having the mindset of the Messiah, expecting that we will suffer and we will deal with warfare in our lives, we need to be alerted to what that means. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5, we are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. It's about the mind. It's about the mindset do we have the mindset of the Messiah that knows that we're in a battle and that we'll be, we'll be in a battle until he returns and we will suffer? Many times we'll get wounded in this battle. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking unto Yeshua, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That's another aspect of the mindset we should have. Not only should we not be surprised at the war we're facing, but secondly, we should be ready to endure it and endure it with joy. Yeshua faced the cross with joy, knowing that he would save sinners and keep them from being destroyed 
and cast into the lake of fire to rescue souls. And in the same way, Paul identifies with this same mission in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 to 9. Remember that Yeshua, the Messiah, for which I suffer trouble, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in the Messiah Jesus with eternal glory. I don't know if there's any greater joy than bringing someone to Yeshua and seeing their lives transformed and on their way to heaven. Luke chapter 15 verse 10 says that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And joy should be our attitude when we suffer in the battle to rescue people from sin and Satan. Now we come to the second way that we ought to live our lives for God's glory knowing that the end is near. We should no longer live under the dominion of the sinful nature. Peter is trying to tell us this in our text. He's saying that we can live a life that brings glory to God by living a lifestyle free from sin. He says in our text, he who has suffered in the flesh, this is verse one, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, one person explains what he's saying here because it can give you the wrong impression. He says, Christ is through with sin in that he has dealt with it finally and completely. And since he has put it behind him, so should believers. Now, we know that Yeshua never sinned. But he dealt with sin. He carried our sins on the cross. He dealt with sin once and for all. He made a way for sinners to be saved by taking on his righteous robes. He has atoned for our sins. He's paid the penalty for our sins. He's dealt with sins once and for all. Praise God. Well, Peter is saying to us, for if you have suffered physically for the Messiah, you have finished with sin. That's what it says in verse 1 in one of the translations. In Pastor Chad's message uh, last week, he spoke a lot about baptism. And I don't want to go too deeply into it. He's already done that. But we know that when we go under the waters of baptism, we are saying that our old sinful nature is crucified with the Messiah. So the sin has lost that power in our lives. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6 when he talks about baptism. Then verse 7 of that chapter, he says, When we died with the Messiah, we were set free from the power of sin. And then verse 8, And since we died with the Messiah, we know we will also live with him. Now that doesn't mean we'll never sin again after we've been baptized. We know that our sin nature, our tendency towards sin, which we inherited from Adam, raises its ugly head often. And so, really, dealing with sin is an ongoing, continual process in our lives. We may get better at it with time, but we're continually having to crucify again our old sinful tendencies. In our text, Peter says, concerning the one who has suffered and died, he says, his old nature will no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men. Now, we're to crucify that nature on a daily basis. I wish I could say that baptism put an end to it, but Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Yeshua says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way and take up your cross daily daily and follow me it's a daily crucifixion that we must go through 
Before I move on to my next point, it's important not to leave out what the sinful nature looks like. How is it manifested? And Peter makes it very clear to us. Now, if we just rely on our conscience, uh, many times we'll be, feel a prick of, uh, of conscience. and We'll know what sin is, but sometimes our consciences can become seared like a hot iron. It can become numb with its um, tendency to have a scarring, and, and we don't, we're not as sensitive to what sin is anymore if we're not careful. If we continually sin, we become numb to sin. So Peter makes it clear what it looks like. Verse 3 of our text, he says, this is just a laundry list. It's not exhaustive. There are many more sins. But he said, I'm reading from the New uh, Living Translation. You have had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy. Their immorality and lust. Their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties. And their terrible worship of idols. Now, before you think uh, we're really holy because we don't live that kind of lifestyle, let's not forget what Yeshua said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28 in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard what it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, certainly this applies not just to men, but to women as well. Now, how is your thinking these days? Have you been allowing immoral thoughts, immoral lusting to creep into your mind? That is sin. And lust is not limited to sexual passions outside of marriage. The Greek word for lust here can include a desire for money, for fame, for power. And um, we call that lust for what other people have, covetousness. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Idolatry, wow. You may not have thought that seeking after these things is idolatry, but Paul says it is. Now I have to admit there were times in my life when I battled with such idolatry. I remember my early 20s when I devoted three years of my life playing in a rock band trying to become famous. Now all of us were believers when we were in that band and our idea was well we're going to get good enough and we'll get enough respect from our audience that uh, then we'll be able to preach the gospel more clearly and, uh, and, and we'll use our platform to do so. Well some of our we, we got fairly good but I could tell you this we didn't share the gospel very often. We're still working at becoming famous enough. How deceptive that is. I remember a time when I spent too much time thinking about real estate investing, and it became a bit of an obsession with me. And you know how dangerous the love of money is. Paul makes it very clear in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith. Now, these lusts are mostly inward, and they get manifested outward. But you know that there's peer pressure that from the outside that can often influence the way we live for God and can keep us from giving glory to God. And we become more and more like the world if we're not careful. We, we want to blend in. We want to be accepted. But you know, we should be far more concerned about being accepted by God than from others. Now, deciding to follow Yeshua may require great cost. And that's one reason why Yeshua tells us, Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, that narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, 
and there are few who find it. Why do only a few find it? Because peer pressure and not dealing with our own inner lusts cause us to go the broad way rather than the narrow way. Let me sum up what we've learned from Peter so far in our text. Number one, Yeshua is coming soon to reward us according to how we bring glory to God. How do we bring glory to God? Number one, we arm ourselves with the mindset of the Messiah. First of all, our mindset is that we expect to face war and suffering. That's how Yeshua looked at these things. We need a mindset that our suffering is worth it. And so we should endure it with joy, especially as we know that the more we give glory to God, the more people are going to come to faith through our influence. And then secondly, we've learned about the importance of stopping our sinning. No longer being under the uh, dictatorship of our old sinful nature. We should no longer live in a way that our, our sinful nature dominates either our thinking or the way that we live. And now I come to the third way to live for God's glory when the end is near. We are to live a lifestyle of prayer. Paul exhort, or Peter exhorts us in verse 7 in our text, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Be serious and watchful in your prayers. Peter just told us in verse 10 of this passage that the day of the Lord will come of like a thief in the night. So nobody knows the day or the hour that he's coming. Thus, we need to be serious. We need to be watchful, especially when it comes to our prayer life. Peter was with Yeshua in Gethsemane the night that Yeshua was arrested. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 37 and following, we read this. He took Peter, same Peter that wrote this book we're reading. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Then in the next, in the next verse, we read Yeshua, and we hear Yeshua praying, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. When it comes to prayer life, many of us can relate to those words. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But as soldiers facing an end time spiritual battle, we need to always be on watch. It's not time for sleeping on the job. A soldier who sleeps when he should be watching could get court-martialed for such negligence. You and I, as soldiers in the army of the Lord, we need to watch and pray. But like Peter knew all too well, our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. There was a major battle soon after the children of Israel left their slavery to Pharaoh. The Amalekites came against them, so Joshua rallied his troops, and that battle was fierce. Sometimes it looked like Israel was prevailing. But then the Amalekites made a comeback, and it was a seesaw battle. Now, what determined who was winning or losing at any given moment? It was prayer that made the difference. Above the battlefield, high up on a summit, was Moses, Aaron, 
and her. We read in Exodus chapter 17, verse 11, and so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. And we know that Moses holding up his hand indicates he was praying. But we know that Moses' flesh was also weak. We can relate to that. The next verse says, but Moses' hands became heavy. And when Moses' hands got weak in prayer, Amalek got the upper hand. Now, if we pray only when we're alone, when we're going to be less effective. We're going to be weaker in our prayers. Yes, we need a private prayer life. We can't do without it. But we are stronger when we pray together. Yeshua said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 19, Again, I say to you that if two or of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Moses was too weak to pray alone. He needed two others to pray with him to see Amalek defeated. And so we read in Exodus chapter 17, verses 12 to 13, But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. And his hands were steady. The word here in Hebrew is emunah, which means faithful. His hands were faithful, steady. He kept his hands above until the going down of the sun, it says. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people. That victory came through prayer. And it came through corporate prayer. It came through not just Moses' prayers, but there was Aaron and her supporting him in prayer. And you know, as we've announced this evening, as Israel is allowing more and more people to gather now face to face, and I'm excited about that, we're enlisting again more prayer warriors. Like Moses who prayed on the top of that summit with Aaron and her, we're calling people from all over this city to come to the summit in this building, on the 17th floor, I know you push the button, floors 14, but there's three other floors below that don't have a number. We're 17 floors above this city, and we can see almost the entire city of Jerusalem. And we're inviting prayer warriors to come and pray and worship with us at that summit. We have the whole top floor we own. Firm has its offices there, but the main prayer room is dedicated to prayer and worship. My wife, Anne, is now the director of the summit, and I'm, I'm glad to support her in that so significant work. And we're inviting you to come and join us at the summit. There we can be serious and watchful in our prayers as Peter exhorts us. And we pray corporately like Moses, Aaron, and her together. Two or three gathered and more many times, of course. And we're stronger in prayer when we pray together. Isaiah tells us how important prayer must be here in Zion. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and following, the Messiah says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Liberty to the captives, that sounds like spiritual warfare to me. And then we see the place where this war is going on in verse 3 of that text. To console those in Zion. And then in the same context, the next chapter, Isaiah 62 begins this way. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp 
that burns. Salvation is coming to Jerusalem. And we read in Romans chapter 11, verse 26, that all Israel shall be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will take away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant when I take away their sins. But I want to tell you this. God's going to do it in cooperation with us as we pray. He wants prayer partners. He listens to our prayers. And in fact, when he's about to do this great work, he's also inspiring his partners in prayer to pray more for Israel's salvation, for Jerusalem's salvation. And we read, for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest. Then the Messiah spoke through the prophet Isaiah a few verses later in Isaiah 62, verse 6 and 7. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night who make mention of the Lord. Do not be silent and give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Now, I know that prayer can be hard work. Our flesh is often weak, and it's easy to get sleepy and lazy as soldiers in God's army, but there's no excuse for not praying along with Aaron and her, or was that him? No, Aaron and her, (laughs) whatever. We're to pray together for God's purposes. Then Peter wrote these words to us, be serious and watchful in your prayers. I bet he recalled Yeshua's rebuke to him. What, could you not watch with me? One hour? (laughs) One hour. Well, that's actually the length of our prayer and worship sessions that we're facilitating at the Jerusalem Summit in this building. And they'll happen at 8 in the morning. They're already starting now. 8 in the morning, 12 noon, and very soon at 5 in the evening where young people will be facilitating those times of prayer and worship. And you don't have to come for the full hour. If you're on your way to work before 8 o'clock, you might have to leave a bit early. And that may be the case if you're on your lunch hour at noon when we gather. But we encourage you to come and join us. We've already started. I've been joining my wife in many of the sessions. And it's exciting to see what God is doing through prayer. Amen. Now there's a fourth way to bring God's glory knowing that the end is near. Paul exhort, Peter exhorts us to have fervent love for one another. Beginning of verse 8, Peter says, and above all things, have fervent love for one another. It's interesting that the phrase one another appears dozens of times in the New Testament. And eight times that very specific phrase, love one another, appears in the New Covenant. Now the word love can easily be misunderstood. We spoke about lust, and sometimes lust can be confused with love. But lust is actually the very opposite of love. Lust seeks our own selfish pleasure. Love unselfishly seeks the good of the other person. Well, Peter actually makes love very tangible in practical ways here in our text. And I'm going to highlight those tangible expressions of what he calls fervent love. He says at the end of verse 8, That love will cover a multitude of sins. Now that has probably several connotations, but one of those connotations is certainly is when someone has sinned against us, we're quick to forgive them. You know, even Yeshua, who was rejected, he was slandered. He was mocked, humiliated on the cross. He was able to say from that cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Oh, that we would be quick to cover other people's sins, to to forgive and even forget those sins. And then secondly, Peter says that we're to be hospitable to one another. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Hebrews 13, 1 verse 
13 verse 1 to 2 says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Wow. And then thirdly, Peter says that we should speak as the oracles of God. Verses 10 and 11 says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. What does it mean to speak as the oracles of God? Well, I, I think I quote more Bible verses per minute per sermon than anyone I know. Uh, why do I do that? Because the writers of scriptures were the oracles of God. And so I can be sure that when I quote them, I'm quoting the very words of God. The New uh, Living Translation translates the first half of 1 Peter 4 verse 11 like this. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Now as a teacher and as a preacher, and I'm going to be held even more accountable because of that privilege and responsibility that I have, according to James... I think the less I give my own opinion and speak the very word of the Lord from the scriptures, the more powerful and effective my words will be. For the Lord Lord declares clearly in Isaiah chapter 55 verse 11, So shall my word that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. And then Peter says that we ought to be ministers, and he clarifies what he means in verse 11 of our text. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies. The original Greek word for ministers here is the word diakoneo, which we get the term deacon from. It means to serve people in ways which the world might think of as menial tasks, but it is far from menial in the eyes of the Lord. Yeshua himself demonstrated his love for his disciples when he washed their feet. Every one of us must be ready to do humble tasks. That's an expression, a manifestation of true love for one another. As we're able to gradually return to in-person gatherings as a congregation here at King of Kings, we'll have more opportunities to use whatever gift God has given to us. Some of you may think, well, when God gave out the gifts, he forgot me. Well, that's not true. In fact, it's Peter here in our text where he says, each one has received a gift. Knowing that, we ought to be good stewards of those gifts that he's given to us. You remember the parable where Yeshua talked about those talents, those amounts of money that he was asking three different servants to invest, and two of them invested well. They made a profit, and one, out of fear, did not invest those talents. And what happened? The man came back from the foreign country where he went to take an account and those first two servants had made a profit and he said to them, well done, good and faithful servant. That third servant who was lazy and afraid, he said, cast that man into outer darkness. This is a serious matter. We, God has given us gifts. We ought to steward them well. We ought to invest them in the kingdom, invest them in people. And we should do that in whatever context we're in, and I'm thinking of our congregation right here in Jerusalem, let's invest our gifts. So I bring this to conclusion. Yeshua is coming soon. He's coming to reward us according to how we bring glory to God. If you've never taken a step to follow Yeshua, I want to invite you right now to do that. 
It's one of the reasons Yeshua has not come back yet. As Peter tells us, he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's waiting for you if you've never received him. He loves you so much that he's been waiting. That you would say yes to him, that you acknowledge your creator, give thanks to him, and obey him when he says, believe in my son. I've sent my son Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I invite you to do that today. And then I talk to believers now and I say, you know what? Some of us need to make some mid-course corrections. There are some lifestyle changes we might need to make if we're going to be ready for our Lord's return and be found occupied bringing glory to his name. It's difficult to break old habits, but Peter reminds us that there is a power we can tap into that will enable us to have Yeshua's mindset, to enable us to be free from the dictatorship of our sinful nature, to live a lifestyle of prayer, and to love one another fervently. In verse 4 of our text, Peter talks about believers who live according to God in the Spirit. And then in verse 11, Peter tells us to serve with the ability which God supplies. It's interesting that in yesterday's Haftarah Haftara portion in the synagogues read around the world includes Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 24 and following. For I will take you from the nations and gather you out of all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. He's speaking about a born again experience being saved by the washing of his water. And then it says, And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then it says this in verse 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my ordinances and do them. How in the world are we going to live a life of obedience? God promises this nation and all those grafted in among this nation of the redeemed people of God that he will put his spirit within us and enable us to live a life that brings glory to God, knowing that the end is near. I close with a doxology. It's, it's, at, it's in the next chapter of our text in First Peter chapter 5. Kind of sums up everything I've been trying to share with you this evening. But may the God of grace, who called us to his eternal glory, by the Messiah Yeshua, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. May this word speak directly to your heart. It's speaking to me as, even as I've been preaching it. I want to serve him. I want to bring him glory until the day he comes. God bless you.